0: Before we kick this thing off, a quick shout out to our sponsor, Mission Solar. We are proud to have Mission as a supporter of this podcast because they make the toughest, most resilient, high-powered solar panels around, and those solar panels are made right here in the United States in San Antonio, Texas. They're about to release a series of even higher-powered products at the end of the year. Stay tuned later in the episode, we're going to hear about the guy who helped invent those panels by using the power of his dreams, literally. Find out more about Mission's American made solar modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome.
1: This is a tough hurricane. One of the wettest we've ever seen from the standpoint of water. Rarely have we had an experience like it, and it certainly is
0: not good. This week, a hurricane redux. One year after Hurricanes Harvey and Maria crushed Texas and Puerto Rico, Florence became one of the ten costliest hurricanes in U.S. history. North Carolina is still reeling from severe flooding. And like Houston last year, the damage was made worse because of coastal development policies, even while state scientists sounded the alarm about rising sea levels. We're going to recap where things stand. Then, residential battery storage. All these storms are getting people to pick up the phone and ask for batteries. It's changing solar. We'll discuss how much, and then the billion-dollar pickup for Lucid Motors. Wait, weren't the Saudis supposed to take Tesla private? How did they end up throwing a cool billion into an even less mature electric car company? Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton are my co-hosts. Jigger, you were absent last week. You, you claimed to be traveling to London. I'm starting to suspect you were the mysterious investor who pulled this Saudi deal together with Lucid Motors.
1: <laughs> it was an 18-hour trip to London, so it was a pretty quick turnaround. I was at the Morgan Stanley uh, Utility Disruption Conference. Mm.
0: What's that all about? Anything new? Utility disruption. We've heard that term for so long now. Any, anything actual new coming out of that?
1: Well, I mean, the good thing is is that all the investors now agree that the utilities have been disrupted. And so now it's just deciding how much they've been disrupted. I mean, the the utilities in Europe have already lost over half their value.
0: Yeah, I guess the fact that Morgan Stanley is having a conference on it is pretty big news in and of itself. Catherine, you almost didn't make it. You were stuck behind like 40 people trying to get the iPhone XS Max or whatever the hell they call it now. But your computer didn't blow up
2: no it stopped working just a mess with my head but it's back
0: now funny story i was actually at the apple store in cambridge uh, a couple months ago buying a new computer and we were going through the process and the the store manager was helping me out and i all of a sudden said my name and he goes oh Stephen Lacey." of Green Tech Media? Huh. Oh, I listen to your podcast.
2: That's great. Well, they
0: are geniuses over there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> True geniuses. They are living up to their names. Well, our petty tech problems are nothing compared to what folks down in North Carolina are going through. And for that matter, what Americans in Puerto Rico have suffered through for the last year. We're taking stock of North Carolina this week. Interstate 95 looked like the Mississippi River. We're probably looking at upwards of $20 billion in damage. I think we've probably surpassed that number now. Uh, And power plants across the region were shut down and slowly reopened. Catherine, you've been talking to folks down there. What is the scene like now?
2: Yeah. And in fact, my son and his girlfriend were two of the evacuees who came up for a few days and then had a really hard time getting back because of the roads closing. I have talked to some folks on the ground um, about what it's like. And there's been some news coverage, um, although not to not to great extent, but basically it's what they call a toxic soup down there. There are hog lagoons that have been breached. There are coal ash ponds that have been breached. There are municipal wastewater systems. There are, you know, they have 9 million pigs down there. It's a huge industry. Uh, Many thousands of them died. Millions of chickens and turkeys died. So there's this mix of, all kinds of horrible, toxic solutions that are floating around and all this water that is going through people's homes. So I think, especially in the southeastern part of the state, it is a total mess. There are a couple of places that were able to duck it Um, because of some adaptation that they've done over the last few years. But otherwise, it was really tough for people. And I think the utility did as much as it could to get people back back in to power down their um, nuclear plant and some of their solar facilities to make sure that there weren't any catastrophic issues with those uh, plants. But uh, it was a real disaster.
0: Yeah, North Carolina particularly suited for a disaster like this because of all those agricultural operations, because of the coal ash facilities, and because um, coastal development has largely remained Unchecked. When you say adaptation for certain areas, what do you mean, Catherine? I'm I'm curious.
2: Yeah. So um, there was one story about a town called Swan Quarter that built a dike, and they were down in the same area that a lot of other towns were completely swamped, and they didn't. They were dry, and the the guy who manages the dike down there is a huge Trump supporter and doesn't believe in climate change, but just said, "Hey, we keep getting flooded, uh, and we keep having hurricanes uh, for whatever reasons." So So I'm going to we're going to have this dike work. And it actually did.
0: Well, uh, a lot of city officials have gone to Germany to learn about the energy transition. Uh, I presume that a lot of city officials will be going to the Netherlands to learn about how to build dikes in the coming years. Um, We had a similar conversation about Hurricane Harvey last year. I can remember kind of saying the same thing we of course don't want to sound like we're lecturing when people are going through such a painful time, but we have to reckon with some of our choices. The consequences of these storms are getting more drastic because of a combination of rising sea levels and coastal development. That's not properly thought out. So in Houston where Harvey hit um, Houston's development directly contributed to that city's problems when Harvey flooded the city Um North Carolina's policy, which explicitly ignores sea level rise caused by climate change, have favored unmitigated development over anything else. And so with the exception of a couple of examples outlined by Catherine, uh, North Carolina is particularly vulnerable, and policymakers have not listened to state climate scientists. Uh, Jigger, are we looking at a situation similar to Houston? Can we compare the two? I don't think so.
1: I mean, Houston was, you know... In negligent in ways that are different than North Carolina, right? I mean, Houston, one, has so many impermeable surfaces that the water had no place to go. And two, they actually took a floodplain, forgot to tell people and started building houses on them, such that they had to actually um, release water behind a dam to protect those houses, which then hurt all the houses downstream of the dam, which was a particularly nefarious issue. Um, In North Carolina, I think it's straightforward, like you were saying, which is basically there were 800,000 people that lived there in 1960s in the coastal areas, and now it's over 2 million, and people continue to want to build unabated. Um, One of my old bosses, Roger Eford, um, BP Solar, I remember, had a piece of land out there, and every time there's a hurricane that hits, he's like, well, my land just got 10% smaller, and... Um, It's just something that people know is coming, right? I mean, there was that long story in the New York Times last month about a woman in Charleston, South Carolina, who hasn't been able to sell her home for a year and a half because she keeps getting flood damage. Um, And she started selling it for a million bucks. And now it's like selling for 450000 just because nobody wants to buy it. Um, I I think that this is going to be something that state officials are just not going to be able to legislate away they're going to have to face the facts that you know, people are not as stupid as they look and that the prices for real estate in the coastal areas of North Carolina are going to come down substantially, which will cause a lot of people to
0: lose their nest egg. Right. It seems like what you just described is similar to Houston, though. So when North Carolina legislators instructed the Coastal Resources Commission to to basically change their prediction for sea level rise— and dramatically lower uh, expected sea level rise, uh, that you know pushed all kinds of development, similar to the way Houston allowed all kinds of development without consider, without any regard to floodplains. The-, the two just seem like very similar poor planning choices.
2: Well, and it's a disingenuous legislature because the 2010 study said by 2100 the sea level would rise 39 inches and they said well don't go to 2100 only go to you know 10 years out so it won't show but six or eight inches. You know, we want to save. We want to save our real estate industry. And if you look on the websites, I mean, those are some pricey homes down there. But there are other ways in which the legislature has been really disingenuous. And another piece of this, which is causing a great deal of damage, and it's not just the coastal area, but it's the areas with all those hog lagoons and other areas, the coal ash ponds that that, that Duke has been protected from so many fines on. So the hog lagoons after Hurricane Floyd, there was a hundred million clean water fund set up to reinforce those lagoons, to prevent them from overflowing. And the lead, this current legislature took that money and repurposed it towards something else. So all along, it has been, you know, they've been trying to put policy in place that really protects people from overflowing, from toxic waste, and from impacts directly associated with living on the coast. And every single time, their legislature is working against the public interest.
1: Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that I I agree that both of them have similar planning deficiencies. But North Carolina has a hockey team called the Carolina Hurricanes. Like, they know that they get hit by hurricanes every year or every other year. Some mild, some heavy, some are remnants of hurricanes that hit Florida, some are other things, right? They have this problem persistently every single year or if not every three years. Houston you know, doesn't get hit that often. And so they they thought they could get away with it. So a lot of the homes that got hit in Houston are like $150,000 houses in the middle of nowhere that were put into a floodplain. Where in North Carolina, these people are being told, hey, pay $800,000 for this beachfront property. And then they, like, basically their house gets ruined once every two or three years. It's like the nuttiest thing. Like North Carolina, like, people will stop being stupid. Like, it'll happen because... Like, people don't want to keep spending $800,000 for a house that then becomes worth 200000
2: Yeah, I talked to someone in the solar industry to ask who is in North Carolina. I said, like, how were your assets... All great, no damage. And I said, "Well, what does that mean?" And he said, "Well, guess what? Solar can't be permanent or financed in flood zones. So we're not going to be in the same line of fire that the hog industry, the coal industry don't have anything like that kind of strictures on them. And so, and and then you've got this Brunswick nuclear station, which is quite close to the shore, but the solar assets are all in places that are out of the flood zone and They are also rated at the tracking systems and, you know, all of their systems are rated at over 100 mile per hour for over 100 mile per hour wind speed. So he said, no, no worries about solar down here. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. Why is
0: the permitting so different for, you know, a conventional power plant versus solar? Because we're held to a
1: very high standard. I mean, there's always some nut job in the town who hates solar, who comes to the hearing and says whatever. And the solar industry has always held itself to a very high standard so it could get through the permitting process. And on top of that, the project finance providers are really sophisticated. And if you put a solar system in a floodplain, they will find out and say, no, we won't actually fund that project because it's going to cost us a lot more on the insurance side. So like you know, I just think people are, you know, like really sophisticated throughout the supply chain of solar, um, you know. And I think on the hog farm side, you know, it's funny. Um, a very good friend of mine who now works at GE Capital started a company when we when I started Sun Edison back in two thousand three to digest a lot of that hog waste into electricity or renewable natural gas. And um, you know, the state of California has been pushing this solution for a long time instead of these open pit. Lagoons and uh, and you know the technology is really cost effective now to do that, and so you know I hope what comes out of this is the hog farms finally um, you know overcome inertia and start implementing profitable solutions to deal with the hog waste in a better way. does
0: a disaster like this present a business opportunity for a firm like yours like can you actually go in and start talking to these farmers and use that as leverage to start signing deals and getting well, them we to have been. differently? So we've
1: been talking to farmers in North Carolina as generate capital for two years. I've been personally talking to hog farmers in North Carolina since the renewable portfolio standard was passed back in 2007. Remember, the RPS standard in North Carolina was not for solar and wind. It was for hog waste, right? The entire reason we got the RPS passed in North Carolina was because hog waste, um, you know, was such a problem. And even today, I would say there are three deals I saw the other day where Duke is paying a renewable energy credit price that's like 20 cents a kilowatt hour or something for hog waste. Those are grandfathered credits from 2007 that they have yet to fulfill because hog waste actually is specified in the Renewable Portfolio Standard, but the projects have never been built because of the inertia within the hog farmers.
0: Look, I don't think we can have this conversation without swiping the administration at least once about their you know, attempt to keep coal and nuclear power plants open for resiliency reasons. There were a bunch of power plants that got shut down by the hurricane. In no way would a 90-day fuel supply protect any of the power plants in the southeast region from this hurricane. So once again, when we look at the causes of outages... Uh, It is not due to the lack of fuel supply at power plants. Um, It's just worth I know that our audience knows all this, but it's worth pointing out the absurdity of the administration's tactics here. And once again, we have a major storm that is causing major power plants to shut down. And in no way would the rules proposed alleviate that.
2: Yeah, so also the things that were completely sold out in every big box store in North Carolina were water bottles, food, and diesel gensets. Everybody wants some assurance that they won't lose power. The other piece of what the administration has done, um, Obama had rules for coal ash ponds that had to be closed, those that were at risk of flooding, by April of 2019. And this administration has rolled that back at least one and a half years. It will probably be more. So not only are they trying to assert that those plants are resilient, but also trying to make sure that all the toxic waste from those that are held in coal ash ponds Continues to pollute waters.
1: The good news out of all of this, though, is that I've been looking at you know battery backup. I just installed my battery backup system here at the house, and um, and the, the amount of interest from the people who've installed solar on their roof and battery backup has spiked. And so people are realizing that instead of instead of spending eighty five hundred bucks to twenty thousand bucks on a diesel genset properly installed at their home that it's better actually just to put in a battery backup system and be able to benefit from it year round.
2: People want batteries and are buying the only thing that they can get their hands on right now, which are diesel gen sets. Those are expensive, they don't know how to operate them and they still require fuel.
1: You know, I am I I, I disagree with the way you rephrase that, Catherine. You should start with Jigger is so right. And then do that. No, I'm kidding. No, I thought your I thought your statement was no, I don't think we have to like talk more about that.
0: Okay, okay. There will be plenty of opportunity to tell you how right you are, Jigger. First, let's take a quick break and hear a really cool story about Mission Solar. Frank Fam creates ideas in a particular way. His best inventions don't come in the middle of the day. They come at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when he's sleeping. He's had the habit ever since he was a 22-year-old engineering student.
3: I would wake up and, uh, like a true nerd, I would grab my notebook and I would jot down things that... Uh, that i dream of and that's where a lot of my uh ideas and innovation comes around that time frame so
0: Today, Frank is head of engineering at the American PV panel maker, Mission Solar. He's also the plant manager. And he's still waking up a lot these days in the middle of the night, as Mission works on a new line of high-powered solar modules.
3: (laughs) That's the secret that uh, now that you know.
0: Frank and the Mission team are putting the finishing touches on four new high-watt solar panel models. A lot goes into making those high-powered panels durable. Waking up in the middle of the night and jotting down ideas is just a start. Mission has an R&D facility at its Texas headquarters, and the modules are conceived, designed, tested, and proven right here in the United States. Finally, after hurling hunks of metal, flames, and even a tank at its panels for the better part of a year, Mission Solar is getting ready to release them to the
3: industry. And uh, the plant is uh, gearing up uh, to start mass producing the new product comes this uh, November.
0: Installers can get their hands on them in January, but they can look at them even sooner at the Solar Power International Conference coming up in Anaheim. That's the biggest solar event of the year, and Mission Solar will have the new panels dreamt by Frank and his team on display.
3: So hope to see all the installers and uh, anybody that is interested in learning a little bit about solar and uh, would put up and and listen to some uh, engineering stories that I, I would love to be able to share with them.
0: Well, hold on a sec. Don't keep us hanging, Frank. Do you have any big ideas for new solar designs you can tell us about?
3: I I have a few, but we'll keep that uh, for uh, in about six or seven months. Hopefully some of that uh, ideas will come to uh, fruition and we can prove it out in the concept and feasibility phase.
0: (laughs) Mission Solar, American solar modules made in Texas, imagined at two o'clock in the morning. The new product line from Mission, featuring three types of high-watt perk modules that boost energy production using the backside of the cell and a new monocrystalline module, are going to be displayed at Solar Power International. Go say hi to Frank and the rest of the team at Mission Solar at booth 1512 inside and 6039 outside. And if you want to just look online, head over to missionsolar.com. All right. So back to our conversation about um, solar and storage. I think it's time to take stock of the residential solar storage landscape. Relevant because it feeds into our conversation about hurricanes and resiliency, you know, a year after... Um, Maria destroyed Puerto Rico, and because we got some new numbers out as well. Our team over at Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables, which is formerly known as GTM Research, tallied the numbers and found that residential storage grew tenfold from Q2 of last year to Q2 of this year. So the numbers are still relatively small. You know, we're growing from a small base. It was 25 megawatts last quarter. But by 2023, we'll probably see a gigawatt of behind the meter residential batteries in the U.S. per year. So that's that's pretty sizable. So what is driving this boom? Obviously, the resiliency picture is really important. The economics are getting better in certain states where these technologies are getting adopted most. You have rate designs that favor self-consumption, particularly in Hawaii. Jigger, help us understand these factors. So Generate is doing a bunch of deals on behind the meter batteries. What kind of stuff do you have cooking in residential and what's driving it?
1: Well, you know, the the residential uh systems haven't been great for us to finance just because they're so cost effectively financed by Sunrun, which I think in the last uh securitization they did a thousand solar uh, storage battery systems, and so you know, I think that the solar loan programs and and PPA financing providers for residential are pretty efficiently financing batteries. But you know, the, the big thing that the utilities are trying to figure out is you know what to do with all these batteries, right? They've been talking about how um, how much you know they have to upgrade circuits for electric vehicles that people are buying, other things, and they haven't really thought through how to use these batteries as a network by which to avoid distribution system upgrades and other things with uh, battery charging for, uh, for EVs. And so I think that that is the next shoe to drop is this level of coordination.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't feel to me to be a limiting factor at this point. It seems like these companies are continuing to pair batteries with solar and they don't really care at this point whether the utility is going to be able to do something with them in aggregate. They know that it will happen at some point, but they're just going to keep selling batteries because people want them more and more.
2: Yeah. I talked to Sunrun and they said 100% of their business in Puerto Rico and Hawaii has solar plus storage and they have this bright box uh, solar and battery service. And 60% in Southern California, and they said it's because of the wildflowers and fires and extreme weather. Um, But about 10% of their full business includes uh, storage. And what they're doing is they're mostly providing this reliability, resilience, backup, but they also can address grid congestion, of course, and do some arbitrage. And it's on the utilities to figure out how they can be helped by this, because it could help the utility. But right now, these are decisions that consumers are making.
0: We're largely on the trajectory that a bunch of solar CEOs discussed a couple of years ago, starting a couple of years ago. I can remember former Solar City CTO Peter Rive getting up on stage at a GTM conference and saying, hey, by 2020 or so, City will be pairing a battery storage system with every solar system that we install. Sunrun was making similar projections. And so you see in select markets that For a company like Sunrun, that is the case. And it feels like by 2020, we'll be at very, very high levels of solar and storage pairing on the residential sector, uh, matching what many of these executives claimed a couple years ago. So it's, it's happening as predicted, it feels like.
2: So I think you're right that it's solar plus storage, but it's even more than that. It's smart solar plus smart storage. I talked to John Berger at Sonova who said, look, we had for a long time dumb solar and now we're having dumb solar and storage. And he said, just as you, by 2020, that's, it's all going to be smart. It's all going to be a service. And that's what the consumer wants and the consumer is asking for. And once they can get, you know, there's a lack of availability right now of all these batteries, and it's all being driven by the EV business. But it, once that battery market starts being more accessible, prices are going to drop, and it's going to become rampant. And,
1: and so as someone who just installed a battery in their house, I I totally agree with you, Catherine. I think I so I have a Pica energy system and I paired it with um, a Lumen sort of smart box. So I have the ability to sort of shut off plug loads from my phone using, you know, just shutting off uh, smart circuit breakers, which I think is super, you know, cool compared to smart, you know, sort of strips uh you know plug strips and that kind of thing so i i agree with you that i think this this is starting to get to that smart home concept that we've all been thinking about for a long time on the shortage of batteries i checked my channels and so you know we're one of the largest buyers of batteries in the u.s from panasonic and lg chem there really isn't a shortage i mean you know they're quoting sort of six week to 12 week uh delivery times but yeah, I think it's honestly mostly that Tesla has overpromised and then decided to take a lot of their um, their supply and shift it to EVs or large-scale utility. And, and so a lot of their dealers have been telling me that they're only getting shipped one battery for every five that they order. But we haven't seen any shortages out of PICA and some of the other companies out there. So I think this is really more of a... Choice by the different companies around supply chain as opposed to a global shortage of battery production.
0: So, is this still an emotional sell or is this like, is this now the economics showing us that storage is here? No, but that's the beauty is this this is emotional sell, right? Like,
1: we were purely in the economics range and now we're back in the emotions range. This is where you want to be, right? I mean, this is where car makers and others like to be is making you make the emotional sale. When a or hurricane is coming by and and two tractor trailer, you know, truckloads of diesel engines sell out in four hours, right? That's an emotional sale. And I think that's where the solar industry is positioning itself now is that instead of wasting your money on a diesel generator, I think people are gonna go with a backup battery system and a smart home, which you can use every day as opposed to, you know, once every two or three years.
0: That's how I think of you, Jigger, the perfect blend of emotion and economics.
2: <laughs> yes, topped only by public utility commissions, um, which I, which are really going to have to play in this because their consumers are going to start demanding that they have resilient services that the utilities can't provide and going to start demand that they be able to buy these from competitors. And I, I, I can see something coming.
0: So you remember when Elon Musk said the Saudis were going to help take Tesla private? Well, there's a new twist in that Tesla-Saudi saga, and it doesn't involve Tesla. That's what's so interesting about it. The Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund is dropping a billion dollars into Lucid Motors, the luxury EV startup that was founded by a former Tesla VP. So I have held my nose all week reading endless headlines about the Tesla killer and the investment that will threaten Tesla's dominance. Oh, I hate those tropes so much. Um. If you think Tesla had issues, well, Lucid has also had its fair share of issues, and it's not even close at the scale that Tesla is. It has struggled to hit some pretty basic manufacturing targets. Uh, it has you know, almost run out of money. Um, so in step, the Saudis with a billion-dollar injection, and this luxury EV company lives to see another day. It's probably going to get its promised Arizona factory up and running, and uh, the Saudis have yet another play. In the hot EV space, Jigger, why would the Saudis turn to Lucid of all companies? I honestly have no
1: idea. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean that's the craziness. Look, I think you know Peter Rawlinson and some of the other folks at Lucid are really smart. I give them credit for, you know, putting together you know an interesting model. They have that Air um, model, which they started taking pre-orders for with deposits back in June of last year. Um, but, you know, one of the big problems with the auto space is unless you started PayPal first, you kind of can't get into this space. And so you've now started um, seeing big investors come in because look at Tesla. I mean, their valuation is so high that if the Saudis put in a billion and figure out how to sell this thing to Volkswagen or somebody else for five billion later, they've made a 5x on their money. I, I just But I don't see how these new startup companies are really going to match Tesla's fan base. I mean, you know, Tesla's fan base really wants what Tesla is offering, you know, all of the latest features, a lot of which are in beta testing mode. And, you know, and that I think is just really hard to replicate with a new company.
0: I totally understand the economics, like why you would want to start with a luxury car in the EV space if you actually want to compete. But that market doesn't feel that big to me anymore. It feels kind of tapped out. I don't know how big how big is it? Like do you think a company like Lucid can fill that space? It doesn't sound like you're very confident it can, Jigger.
1: Well, Tesla only serves the luxury market to be clear, right? They have not shipped a Model Three yet that has uh, with a package that's less than fifty-eight thousand dollars for the car. So um, I still consider that luxury. And so, I, so, look, I think that there's a lot of room to run in the luxury uh, space. But it, you know, but the problem with the luxury space is you can imagine for folks who want to shell out you know, sixty to $80,000 for a car, they kind of want to make sure that it works. I mean, remember, for the first two years when Tesla shipped their Model S, they had to replace the entire drivetrain on every one of those cars. They just called it routine maintenance and let people come in and they just swapped out the drivetrain. But they did that. So Tesla lost money on every car they shipped for the first three years. And so you know, are these companies going to be able to avoid that fate for themselves? And if you're a luxury car owner, do you want to buy a car that from a company that could go bankrupt before, you know, they, um, you know, produce a car that really is going to last for 10 years?
2: So I would, I talked to somebody in Saudi Arabia about this, and just wanted to step back for just a second to this public investment fund, which is going to be $500 billion fund. And the crown prince, who is sort of put out the strategy for this fund. Is your source
0: the crown prince?
2: No, no, my source was not the crown prince. Uh, (laughs) He works with the crown prince. MBS? He works with the crown prince. Did you work with MBS? (laughs) He works with the crown prince. But this guy is really smart strategist. He's very energetic. He wants to change a lot of things in Saudi Arabia. He wants to transform entertainment, real estate, recycling, you know, Hella taxis, community development. They're trying to do a lot of things, and so they've got this five hundred billion dollar fund, and they're they're investing in a bunch of different sectors. So they want to do five or ten investments in each sector. So one of the sectors is electric vehicles. There are not very many early-stage pure-play electric vehicle companies, right? So Lucid was one of them. They've already given one and a, over a billion and a half to Tesla anyway. So this is another one that they can put out there. They can do a few more in this sector. They may be able to do you know, joint ventures with one of the American manufacturers that's also doing EVs because they know how to make cars. So there may be a bunch of different ones. So it doesn't have to be that they're putting... It, this isn't everything that they're putting into Lucid. This is one thing. And the whole idea behind the Crown Prince's strategy is that he's betting against oil. If you bet against oil and you put a lot of money into EVs, you're going to win either way. They've already got oil. So if oil wins, they win. If EVs win, they've got enough investment spread out to win. So this is a much bigger strategy that they're coming up with. So I kind of see that if you step back and look at it, if you dive too far into Lucid, you may not see it as much as if you step back and look at the full portfolio.
0: Seems to me that we're setting up a pretty interesting geopolitical race around the future of transportation. China versus the Saudis versus the Americans. Anyone else see it that way?
1: Well, I think I have a very familiar answer to that, which is that you know the technology is still American. So mm, I, yeah. I think I think that the Chinese, frankly, are doing an extraordinary job in electrification, as you know, you know, of the forty thousand electric buses. Um, in operation around the world today, less than 200 are in the United States. And, you know, 90 8% of them or something are in China.
0: So Yeah, it's like 98%, yeah. Yeah,
1: so in general the Chinese are getting a lot of practical experience on charging infrastructure and how to retrain mechanics and you know how electric vehicles work on the road and what characteristics and features matter and all of that really practical information and so I think that is really valuable and and I'm glad that the Chinese are really taking a real leadership uh, position there. But but I, I do think that the Saudis are really just investors, and my sense is they're investing in either American companies, more likely, or uh, Chinese companies.
2: So one thing that is a wild card is the still yet-to-be-announced Trump administration tariffs on the entire auto industry, and unclear how that is going to intersect with all of these investments in American companies.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. This week, we just saw new tariffs on Chinese inverters. So with this administration, um, you know, who knows what's next? So the Saudis are investing in Uber. They're investing in Tesla. They're investing in solar fields. They're investing in Lucid. Um, What next? What do we think that the Saudis are going to invest in next? Personally, I think they're going to make a huge play in electric scooters.
1: Well, I think they should invest in, you know, hella great financing companies like Generate.
0: Mmm, mmm, little log rolling, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Look, I think, I mean, I it can't be a bad thing for these big sovereign wealth funds around the world to actually invest in climate solutions. So, I, you know, I'm really happy to see them seeing That this is a big growth area for them. And I think we're all thankful that, you know, these large, sophisticated investors have started to see us as, you know, a way to make a lot of money.
0: All right. Time for our free electrons, folks. Catherine, what do you got?
2: So when you say electrons, I always take that to mean I have to come with more than one.
0: You're going to have just one um, this week. I know. it. I can feel oh, it. Oh, no.
2: Oh, no. I do have two. Okay. But they're quick. Okay. One is that despite the fact that the administration does not like Department of Energy and a lot of its programs – ARPA-E just awarded $28 million for 10 long-duration storage projects, which is amazing. And they also re-upped J. Caesar, which is the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research at Argonne Lab, $120 million for five years. So good news for storage. Um, and the second one is that early this week, I did something that Jigger did last year, which was go- to go to the Midwest Energy News 40 Under 40 Celebration in Chicago and it's uh, Energy News Network. Uh, This is run by Ken Palman and uh, Rob Davis from Fresh Energy, who's a big pollinator guy, uh, was really in charge of the event. Michael Noble from Fresh Energy and I had a great conversation, and I got to meet 40 amazing rock stars plus all of their spouses and friends. There was even uh, Commissioner Rupp from Missouri who came because the chief of staff for the Missouri Commission got an award. So he came along to cheerlead. It was an amazing event. So just want to give them a shout out.
1: I love those guys in Chicago. Yeah.
2: There's so much going on in the Midwest that people don't know about. It is astounding.
0: Jigger, what's your free electron?
1: So I and many others are going to, you know, get to Solar Power International next week. And uh, so if you're there, I would love to see you. And so contact me on Twitter or other places. But the story I want to talk about today was David Roberts had this great piece on the 100% renewable energy thing and a uh, great report that was uh, presented to the board members and executives of EEI from uh, Messlansky and Partners. And what they found was that Republican, Democrat, you know, doesn't matter. All ratepayers want 100 percent renewable energy, not zero carbon, although I think 100 percent zero carbon is better. But they want 100 percent renewable energy. And um, even if you tell them that um, there's going to be a 10 to 30 percent bill increase, 51% of their ratepayers still want them to get to 100% renewable energy. And so the utility industry has been trying to grapple with what to do. I mean, for a long time, they were saying, well, you, you know, renewable energy isn't stable and it's variable and all this other stuff. And it just makes their ratepayers mad, according to this new study. And so the only thing that they can get away with saying, according to the study, is, that it might take a little bit longer than they think. And they're not even sure they can get away with that. So it's pretty damn cool. And I think a lot of people are going to be talking about it at SPI.
0: I'll give that a read. I had not seen that one. So I sent around a link last week or two weeks ago, whenever Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan's show, and it got a lot of play on Twitter because Elon took a hit of a a Duffkin, as we call it, a half tobacco, half marijuana cigarette. And, uh, you know, everyone freaked out about that. But few people actually paid attention to the substance of the conversation itself. So I sent around a link and I said, hey, maybe we should talk about this. It's a cultural phenomenon. Joe Rogan's got a super popular show. I've been waiting for this interview for a long time. Let's check it out. Uh, I hadn't listened to the interview yet before I sent it around. And I did, and I was really disappointed with the interview. Uh, First, I was disappointed with the coverage, uh, the fact that everyone just focused on Elon smoking a joint. Um, You know, I get that he's a CEO of a public company, and that's not how CEOs act of public companies historically, but, like, we're not talking about the average CEO. So uh, let's focus on the conversation itself. I don't know. I thought it was kind of underwhelming. It was kind of a botched opportunity. I was so excited. Two hours with Elon Musk. I mean... Who knows what they're going to get into. And it just felt like two bros in college in a dorm room getting high, like talking about, you know, talking about just random stuff. I I just thought it was a missed opportunity. And I listened to Joe Rogan's show and I, you know, I think he has some really fascinating interviews and was hoping something else would materialize that was special. Um, Did you guys listen to it? And what did you think? Catherine, you had a funny reaction to it.
2: Yeah, I listened to as much as I could before losing my mind. I just, I have no patience with that kind of, conversation and you know I do a lot of reading and I listen to a lot of podcasts and frankly most of the podcasts I listen to have nothing to do with energy um but yeah I I made it through about 45 minutes
0: (laughs) I'm so sorry I got an email from you and you basically had said that and I I laughed so hard because then I I had finally listened to the show and I totally understood what you what you meant Jigger, you had a different response though you thought you thought some of the boring company stuff and the vertical takeoff and landing stuff was pretty cool
1: I like the podcast, and I honestly think that for those of you who listen to it, that is exactly how all of the conversations go amongst like clean energy executives. Like it is a windy road. I just had a dinner in Palo Alto with eighteen CEOs um, in the clean tech community this last week, um, and uh, and you know that's sort of how these conversations go, right? I, I think that people are genuinely not experts in areas where. Um, they don't actively work, and I think you know when you think about what Elon's trying to figure out at SpaceX and Tesla. I do think he sort of phones it in at Boring Company and in some of these other areas, and his insights are interesting but not fully formed. And I think that's that's you know that's Elon.
0: Mm-hmm. You're telling me that not all conversations are as clear and crisp as the ones here on the Energy Gang. I think, I, I think almost
1: no conversations are clear, Chris, like they are in the Energy Gang, which is why you do such a great
0: job. <laughs> I think that's a good place to, to leave it. We find listeners through a lot of different channels, but uh, getting suggestions from people on social media or an email or just word of mouth is really helpful. So pass pass along this show to your friends or your colleagues or your family members, people who might be interested in the industry. And um, the crazy energy transition we are in the middle of. Also, give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts and find us everywhere. We have had an issue with Google Podcasts for a long time. And we finally worked with Google and figured out what was going on. They had been picking up duplicate feeds for the energy gang and they were unable to figure out those duplicate feeds and they finally uncovered what was going on. So we erased that old duplicate feed and you should be able to find us now updated on Google podcasts and everywhere else you get your shows. Hit us up on Twitter. Give us an email at podcast at greentechmedia.com. Go to our live show on October 4th in New York city. We are going to be at the WNYC green space It is the best venue. It is our favorite show of the year. It is in partnership with Clean Energy Connections. Tickets sell out really fast. So make sure to get your tickets. I will link to that in the podcast show notes. Come to our live show in New York City. Uh, that's going to be great. And then in April, we're going to be at the MIT Energy Conference. So we'll have more details on that coming up later this year. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Jigger. Always fun. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.